Well, I'd invite you to take your Bibles and turn to the book of Leviticus, Leviticus chapter 10. Genesis, Exodus, then the third book of the Bible, Leviticus chapter 10. It's a long chapter, and so I'm not going to read it all. I'm just going to read the first three verses, and we'll read some of these other verses as we move along today. Uh, Leviticus chapter 10, beginning with verse 1 and then reading through verse 3. Leviticus 10, verse 1. Now Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put fire in it and laid incense on it and offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, This is what the Lord has said. Among those who are near me, I will be sanctified, and before all the people, I will be glorified. And Aaron held his peace. Well, we've been looking at themes from the book of Leviticus uh, once a month as we come to the Lord's table. And last time we came to the table of the Lord, we were in a very festive chapter, chapter 9. It was um, a time where the newly ordained priest, uh, the high priest Aaron and his sons, newly ordained to the priesthood, had begun uh, their ministry in the tabernacle area and... um, Chapter 9 ended on a very high and festive note. Look at the end of chapter 9 with me, will you, as we look again at verses 22 through 24 of that chapter. Then Aaron lifted up his hands toward the people and blessed them, and he came down from offering the sin offering and the burnt offering and the peace offerings. And Moses and Aaron went into the tent of meeting, and when they came out, they blessed the people, and the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people, And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed the burnt offering and the pieces of fat on the altar. And when all the people saw it, they shouted and fell on their faces. Everything that uh, Aaron and his sons had done uh, in the ordination week of Leviticus 8, and now as they begin their ministry, and Leviticus 9 was according to the book, they did everything God's way, and God publicly set his approval upon Aaron, the high priest, who as the high priest pointed to and preached the Lord Jesus Christ, our high priest. And uh, God um, not only was authenticating Aaron in that ministry, but uh, God accepted the atoning sacrifice made for Israel that pointed to and prophesied the cross. And he manifested his acceptance of that sacrifice by the fire that came down from heaven and it consumed the burnt offering on the altar. It didn't consume the people. It consumed the substitutionary offering made in behalf of the people. God had accepted that offering that ultimately points to Christ and him crucified. And it was a time of of great celebration. God was in their midst, our holy God, a consuming fire. And yet, he wasn't in the midst of his people to consume them as their sins deserve, but to bless them by his grace. And there was a wonderful celebration of the grace of God. The people 
were rejoicing. They fell on their faces rejoicing at the end of chapter 9. But then things suddenly change now as we come into our chapter today of Leviticus 10. Most uh, commentators are persuaded that this judgment of God upon the two oldest sons of Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, that that it occurred later on this very same day where they began their ministry that we looked at in chapter 9. Andrew Bonar, who's Commentary in Leviticus is rightly considered a classic, uh, makes the argument that it was the next day. But the bottom line is, is that these events are happening in very close proximity uh, to one another. Um, What a shock it was when God struck down these two priests. That festivity of joy suddenly gave way to shock and sadness and great sorrow. In Leviticus 10, we read for the first time of disobedience to God's commands in the book of Leviticus. And it was flagrant. It involved uh, two of the newly ordained priests, Nadab and Abihu. And they were judged for this will worship of theirs. And the judgment that followed was, you can imagine, the shock of Aaron's life and Aaron's wife and their two surviving sons and Moses and indeed the whole nation was in a state of shock and sadness at what had happened. This time the fire also came out from the Lord, but it fell on the disobedient priest and it killed them. This is the opposite of the grace that was celebrated at the end of chapter 9, this is judgment. No shouts of joy here, only the palpable silence of Aaron, who knows that what Moses is saying to him as he quotes the word of the Lord is true. Among those who are near me, I will be sanctified, and before all the people, I will be glorified. Well, as we look at this passage today, I want to look at it with you under three heads. First, some perplexities, secondly, some failures, thirdly, some connections. Uh, First, some perplexities to explain, secondly, some failures from which to learn, thirdly, some connections for us to make. Let's begin with some perplexities to explain. And the first perplexity is the severity of God in this chapter, and this is not a perplexity because God is being unjust. Shall not the judge of heaven and earth do what is right? Of course, God will always do what is right. He is being impeccably just. That's really not the perplexity here. The perplexity is the severity here in relationship to what we ordinarily witness and observe in the world around us. I mean, if God were to deal in the coming week with the kind of severity that we see him dealing with sin in our passage, I can assure you there would be many funerals all over this world. And I'm talking about funerals of church people. I'm talking about funerals of pastors who would be buried because 
they have done something far worse than these two men in our passage who tampered with a type of the gospel. There are men all over the world who are tampering with the real gospel by preaching a false gospel from the pulpit, and yet we don't anticipate that we will see many, many funerals this coming week, do we? It's just not the way we are observing the world around us. And so we are taken by surprise here because the judgment of this chapter is so rare at present. And we're really being roused by our text out of that spirit of presumption that even the strongest Christian has a tendency to slip into. We tend to slip into a kind of presumptuous spirit and and a text like this arouses us out of that and makes us confront again the truth of God's awesome holiness. Now, in order to understand this judgment, we need to understand the sin of Nadab and Abihu. And the Jewish rabbis were of the opinion that these two men committed uh, many sins, but among them they said that they were intoxicated, that they were drunk when God's judgment fell upon them. Now, why did the rabbis say that? Well, they based it on the first instruction that God will give to Aaron in the middle of this chapter, in that teaching moment that this occasion uh, afforded. Uh, God will give three instructions to Aaron uh, in verses 9 through 11. And the first instruction in verse 9 basically says, don't drink and work. God is giving instructions for future priests. Look at verse 9. Drink no wine or strong drink, or you or your sons with you uh, when you go into the tent of meeting, lest you die. It shall be a statue forever throughout your generations. Well, were Nadab and Abihu drunk? Well, the text doesn't actually tell us that, does it? It could be. I think the rabbis are making a good educated guess here, and we do know that they would have had alcohol available to them in that temple complex or that tabernacle complex. They stored wine for the drink offerings, and it could be that these two boys had gotten into the wine and had gotten drunk. That's possible. But verse 9 doesn't absolutely demand it. I mean, it could be read simply with what follows, namely that the priest needs to have a clear mind to carry out the duties of verses 10 and 11. What we do know about the sins of these priests that brought this judgment is given in the opening two verses. Would you look at that again with me? Leviticus 10, beginning with verse 1. Now, Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put fire in it and laid incense on it and offered unauthorized fire before the Lord which he had not commanded them. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. Now the text says that they combined incense with unauthorized fire. And if you've got the ESV, it has a footnote that says, or strange fire. Well, what is unauthorized fire? What is strange fire? You'll find that there's a lot of debate in the commentaries about that, but as for myself, I'm persuaded that the unauthorized fire, the strange fire, is that fire that came from some other source other than the, tabern uh, the altar in the courtyard of the tabernacle, that altar of bronze 
offering, that uh, altar of burnt offering in the courtyard. Uh, That's where the fire fell in Leviticus chapter 9. And you remember in Isaiah 6, when Isaiah is converted and called to the ministry of being God's prophet, uh, he um, experiences the taking of that coal from the altar of burnt offering by the angel with the tongs and applied to his lips, cauterizing him, symbolizing the cleansing of the atonement that God would provide for his servant Isaiah. Well, that, uh, that came from the altar of burnt offering, which preaches the cross. That's what it preached under the old covenant. That's what it pointed to. That's what it foreshadowed. And since the altar prophesied and preached the cross as the only way by which the Israelite or the Gentile, for that matter, can approach God, there is in this strange fire a kind of tampering with that which typified the gospel under the old covenant. Now, if men died for merely tampering with the type of the gospel, but not with the gospel itself under the old covenant, How much more severely do you think men ought to be judged for tampering with the real gospel? You know, I'm not persuaded at all that uh, Nadab and Abihu are lost people. I, I would not be surprised that we would meet them in heaven, that there was a temporal physical judgment upon them. But there was a judgment upon them as they as they tampered with a type of the gospel, but what about men who actually tamper with the real gospel and they preach a false gospel of faith in Christ plus, whatever that plus might be, whether it's baptism, whether it's circumcision, whether it's keeping uh, the dietary food laws or whatever you want to put in that category makes it a false gospel according to Galatians. What does that person have coming to him if He persists in preaching that false gospel. Well, Paul tells us this in Galatians 1, 8 and 9. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. Accursed. But the unauthorized fire is not the only sin of these two men. We can certainly add to the list the sin of envy and of a presumptuous spirit and of an alarming lack of the fear of God. Now, the text is suggestive of their intention of going into the tabernacle, and I think their intention was to go into the Holy of Holies, but they never made it. Before they could even take step into the tabernacle, the fire of God came from out where the Ark of the Covenant was. It went through the tabernacle like a bolt of lightning into the courtyard and struck these two men dead before they could enter into the immediate presence of God. Now, why do I say that I think that they were intending to go into the tabernacle and even into the inner sanctum of the tabernacle, the Holy of Holies? Well, I say it because of what the text tells us here. We read that they mixed this strange fire with incense. And that was the work 
of Aaron the high priest when he went into the tabernacle, specifically when he was to go into the Holy of Holies on the day that God appointed for him to go, which would be the Day of Atonement. He would go into the inner sanctum with this fire taken from the altar that was now uh, wonderfully setting uh, into motion a cloud of the most incredible smelling perfume you've ever smelled in your life as he went in. What's the symbolism there? Well, if the fire from the altar pointed to the sacrificial work of Christ, our high priest, the sweet-smelling incense points to the work of Christ, our high priest, in his ongoing intercessory prayers for his people based on that sacrifice that he made for us on the cross. Now, that incense uh, being ignited by the fire from the altar was also doing something else for the high priest on the Day of Atonement. It was creating a cloud. It was creating a kind of barrier as he was coming into the presence of God between him and a holy God. You see, while Aaron was a type of Christ, he was no Jesus. He was a sinner like you and me. And, and, and the, 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 the suggestion here is that this was for his protection. You could almost kind of think of it like a heat shield on a, on a spacecraft that is re-entering Earth's atmosphere, that this was a kind of protection for Aaron. But here's the bottom line. Aaron was called to that work of being a high priest. These two boys were not the high priest. So why do they want to go into that place where God has not commanded them to go? The only answer I can come up with is envy. They had seen Moses and Aaron, in obedience to God, go into that tabernacle in Leviticus 9 and come out and bless the people, and they were now envious and thought that that privilege ought to be theirs as well. And then presumption was also part of the explanation for their sinful conduct. I mean, these two men had been wonderfully privileged by God, I mean, They had just been set apart for the priesthood. Talk about an honor. Talk about a privilege. And then you begin to think about these two men were part of that group of 70 or so men, including Moses and Aaron and the elders of Israel, who had seen that unique theophany of God on Mount Sinai in Exodus 24. It wasn't the whole nation that saw that. It was just a select group of 70 or so people, and they were among them. They had that kind of privilege that had been given to them. But rather than being grateful and humbled by such privileges, they presumed that they were entitled to more than what God had given to them. And then they they lack piety. And what I mean by that is there's a glaring lack of the fear of God here in their flagrant disobedience to his word. I mean, they know that what they're doing isn't right. Now, it begs the question, what about you? What about me? What is our relationship to the word? These men brazenly did that which God had not commanded them, we read in the text. Well, that's impious. What is the mark of piety in the church? Well, I can tell you what it's not. I can tell you that the mark of piety is not learning the Christian vocabulary and using it profusely. You don't even have to be a Christian to do that. That's not the mark of piety. The mark of piety is our attitude 
and our response to the word of God. That's true piety. And with that in mind, why is it that so many young people in the church are raising their children and disciplining their children with timeouts? Where do you find that in the Bible? I can find in the Bible that with our young children, we're not to spare the rod. And how seldom we see that in the church anymore. Where's the piety in that? The church, in the Bible, we read that in the church, that ministers need to preach the word. That means they need to have studies and not offices. That means they they need to, to read and study and ponder and pray and seek to bring out the meaning of the text to the people. And yet, I ask the question, how many pastors are bringing out the meaning of the text today? Where's the piety? Where's the piety in the pulpit? I'm not saying that it's not being done. Thank God it is. There are many who are preaching the word in our land and throughout the world, but there are many who are not. Where's the piety in that? And doesn't the Bible tell us in 1 Timothy 2 and in 1 Timothy 3 that God has called men to be preaching of, preachers of the word? How come there are so many pulpits in our land that are being occupied by women today? Where's the piety in that? Does God tell us that marriage is between one man and one woman, Genesis 2, and Jesus says the same thing in Matthew 19? How come there are so many churches today that are supportive of so-called same-sex marriage? Where is the piety in that? It would seem that many are failing to learn the lesson of Leviticus 10. But what about you? What is your attitude? What is your response to the word of God? One of the lessons as we watch the cousins of Aaron, and that was in a verse that we didn't read this morning, one of the lessons we watch, as we watch the cousins of Aaron carry out the corpses of Nadab and Abihu is spelled out for us by Isaiah. Isaiah 66, verses, well, verse 5, Hear the word of the Lord, you who tremble at his word. Your brothers who hate you and exclude you because of my name have said, Let the Lord be glorified, that we may see your joy. Yet they will be put to shame. The second perplexity that confronts us in this text is the ban on public mourning for Aaron and his remaining two sons, would you look at verses 6 and 7 with me? And Moses said to Aaron and to Eliezer and Ithamar, his sons, Do not let the hair of your heads hang loose, and do not tear your clothes, lest you die, and wrath come upon all the congregation. But let your brothers, the whole house of Israel, bewail the burning that the Lord has kindled. And do not go outside the entrance of the tent of meeting, lest you die, for the anointing oil of the Lord is upon you. And they did according to the word of Moses. Well, what was customary upon the death of a loved one in Israel was to express it in a number of outward acts of grief. I am um, sometimes reminded particularly by others, 
of how stoical my bearing can be, and it's part of my Dutch ancestry. I'd like, I'd like to think, think that heaven will heal me of that. But, you know, I have a kind of stoical bearing, and I've noticed that people of northern European ancestry, we tend to be, you know, if the house is on fire, we tend not to get excited. You know, it's just kind of how we're put together. And uh, the Jews are not like that. The Jews are demonstrative people when they talk, you know. I mean, they use their hands. And when they grieve, they express it demonstrably. They, 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 in, in, in that time, they tore their clothing. And clothing was expensive, very expensive. But that was how they expressed their grief. They tore their clothes. And, and then they wouldn't comb their hair. And they were disheveled. And they looked a mess for the next uh, couple of weeks. That's how they grieved. And this is obviously a time of great sadness for Aaron and his surviving sons, and from all appearances, it's a time to mourn. But God says not to mourn in the traditional way, and it begs the question, why? Now, in, in addressing this perplexity, it's important to remember first principles. It's not that God is lacking in compassion for Aaron or his sons. In this judgment chapter, if you read through it, there are many overtures of God's mercy to these grieving people. Uh, there is overtures of mercy to Aaron in particular in verses 8 through 11. In the only time in Scripture, God speaks to Aaron alone. No Moses is present, just God and Aaron. This is a signal mercy of God to Aaron. And then if you look at the verses that follow, verses 12 through 15, Moses is assuring Aaron and his surviving sons that the holy food from the tabernacle that's part of their maintenance and part of the maintenance of their families still belongs to them. God's mercy and assurance is, is prominent, and we should not miss that in this chapter. Nor is God forbidding all public mourning. Look at verse 6b. But let your brothers... The whole house of Israel bewail the burning that the Lord has kindled. The ban on public mourning on the part of the priest is related to their office. They were not to tear their clothes because they were not civilians. They were priests on duty. And their clothing had significant symbolic meaning. And Aaron especially pointed to the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, uh, because the anointing oil was still on them and they were wearing their, their priestly clothes and they were on duty, they were not permitted to mourn outwardly in the traditional way that Jews mourned on this occasion. And they must also on this occasion stand in solidarity with God in the judgment he has rendered, and that too for the benefit of Israel, in other words, this moment is bigger than Aaron and his two surviving sons. What would ordinarily be acceptable is not in this unique situation. Well, what are the connections of this perplexity to us? Well, I would say that duty to God comes ahead of natural affection. I mean, don't we see that with the Lord Jesus Christ? Let me ask you this question. What man in history loved his mother the most? That's an easy question uh, to answer. There's not even a close second. The man Jesus loved his mother far more than any man has ever loved his mother. 
Great was his natural affection for her. And don't we see that on the cross as he is dying on the cross and in John's Gospel, chapter 19, he commends Mary to the care of the Apostle John and and he is looking out for her welfare and he is showing what strength of natural affection he has for his earthly mother. But he is doing that from the cross, isn't he? His natural affection did not prevent him from doing his God-given duty, which was to go to the cross to pay for all of our sins, including the sins of his mother Mary. Natural affection for Mary did not keep him from doing his duty before God, even though it meant that Mary's heart was broken. As we think about how this applies to us, the principle that applies is that our love for and our duty to God needs to transcend the strongest of natural affections. I I know that you are in full agreement with what I'm going to say, that, of course, we need to love our parents. Of course, we need to love our children. Of course, we are to love our spouse. But what the Bible says that, yes, while of course you are to do that, you are not to love your family supremely. You are to love God supremely. That's what the scripture teaches. And we must not allow natural affection to hold us back from doing our Christian duty. We mustn't allow our natural affection for a loved one to override what God has revealed in his word so that we side with the sin of a loved one and the loved one in their sin rather than with God. I knew very well a Christian father who loved his son as much as an earthly father can. And yet he was put into a position that no earthly father ever wants to be put into. His son had been in a pressure cooker situation, and in that pressure cooker situation, uh, he had... He had sinned against God, and that sin involved many other people financially where they experienced financial loss. And the father, because he feared God and he did love his son and loved and was concerned about his son's soul, very gently but firmly spoke with his son, pointed him to the God that he had offended, called him to repent. He was both firm and gentle at the same time as he did that. But his son and his daughter-in-law were unappreciative of that. They were expecting unqualified support and not a sermon from dad. And the relationship would never be the same on the earth. Sometimes it can be costly to live the Christian life, can't it? But God first. Well, secondly, some failures from which to learn. Leviticus 10 is bracketed by failure on the part of all four of Aaron's sons. We've already considered the brazen rebellion of the older two boys, up front. That's how the chapter begins. But the chapter ends with the failures of the two remaining sons of Aaron. Let's look at those verses now, verses 16 through 20. 
where we see Moses being faithful in all of God's house. Look at verses 16 and following. Now Moses diligently inquired about the goat of the sin offering, and behold, it was burned up. And he was angry with Eleazar and Ithamar, the surviving sons of Aaron, saying, Why have you not eaten the sin offering in the place of the sanctuary, since it is a thing most holy and has been given to you that you may bear the iniquity of the congregation to make atonement for them before the Lord. Behold, its blood was not brought into the inner part of the sanctuary. You certainly ought to have eaten it in the sanctuary as I commanded. And Aaron said to Moses, Behold, today they have offered their sin offering and their burnt offering before the Lord, and yet such things as these have happened to me. If I had eaten the sin offering today, would the Lord have approved? And when Moses heard that, he approved. You know, Moses um, strikes me as being a little bit of a micromanager, but you can kind of understand why he would on this day. He's concerned that the priesthood is going to end on the very day that it begins. I mean, he has seen two priests cut off, and he fears for the two surviving sons of of Aaron, he has done an inspection work on this day. He was faithful in all of God's house, the, the preacher tells us in Hebrews. And so he paid attention to the details of God's house. And he went to do an inspection work on the work of, of Eliezer and Ithamar. And he discovered that they hadn't done everything according to the book. If the two older boys had brazenly rebelled against the word, these two boys had failed to do something that they ought to have done. And so Moses comes to them and wants to know how come they didn't eat of the sin offering as, as they should have. And we're not entirely sure exactly what is going on with these two boys. Uh, did they uh, just have a lack of appetite given the circumstances? Uh, certainly we can understand that and they weren't uh, able to eat the food? Is that what's going on? Or was it just a mistake on their part? I tend to think it was probably that. I mean, there were sin offerings that you burned, and there were other sin offerings that you ate. And, and you know, when you're in a state of grief, your mind's not exactly clear, is it? And, and maybe it was that they just made a mistake, or maybe it is to be explained by the fact that they just had no appetite to eat on, on such an occasion. But whatever the explanation is, it doesn't seem to be an apple with an apple with what we saw in the opening two verses. And, and Aaron makes an appeal to the mercy of God, and, and, and Moses is satisfied with that. Well, what are we to make about a chapter that is framed by priestly failure? We need a better priest, right? We, we need a priest um, who is not corrupt like Nadab and Abihu, nor incompetent like Eliezer and Ithamar. We need Jesus, and Jesus is that better priest, as is brought out in the book of Hebrews. And here's the point. He has not failed you, and he will not fail you. Well, finally, some connections for us to make. In the structural center of Leviticus 10 are God's words to Aaron. And this is the only time that God speaks to Aaron directly and alone. And there is mercy and there is reassurance of his role of being the high priest in these verses. 
It's timely instruction given in a teachable moment as it concerns the priest. Look at verses 8 through 11. And the Lord spoke to Aaron, saying, Drink no wine or strong drink, you or your sons with you, when you go into the tent of meeting, lest you die. It shall be a statute forever throughout your generations. You are to distinguish between the holy and the common, and between the unclean and the clean. And you are to teach the people of Israel all the statutes that the Lord has spoken to them by Moses. Well, what are the connections for us to make living as we do under the new covenant? I think there are two. First, everything that Aaron is taught concerning the priest applies to pastor teachers in the New Testament. I mean, does verse 9 warn the priest against the abuse of alcohol and forbid its use when on duty? Well, doesn't Paul say of elder qualifications in 1 Timothy 3, 4, not a drunkard, but a pastor, like all Christians, is not only not to be governed by alcohol, you are to be governed by the Holy Spirit, you are to be filled with the Spirit, not with wine. First, uh, Ephesians 5, 18, do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery, instead be filled with the Spirit. And then verse 10 says that a clear mind is needed to distinguish between the holy and the common and between the unclean and the clean, and that will divide much of the remainder of Leviticus in the reverse order that's given here. Uh, The word pictures of the unclean and clean to illustrate the doctrine of sanctification found in chapters 11 through 15. It's framed by the pollution of Nadab and Abihu's sin. This is a teaching moment to give instruction on holiness. The priests need to discern these things for themselves. And isn't that what uh, Paul says to Pastor Timothy in 1 Timothy 4.16? Watch your life and doctrine closely. Persevere in them, because if you do, you'll save both yourself and your hearers. And then verse 11 gives the priest the role of teaching for the sanctification of God's people, And is this not why New Covenant ministers must be able to teach and must, in fact, preach the word? So verses 8 through 11, which are at the heart of this chapter, are still at the heart of a New Covenant ministry. And I ask the question, what man could be faithful to teach in an edifying way who ignores sin's pollution on the one hand in the works of the flesh and the fruit of the Spirit on the other? I mean, when, when, you, when you read what God is saying here in Leviticus, it's fleshed out for us in all the epistles of the New Testament. What is Paul constantly doing? What is Peter doing? What is John doing in these epistles? Well, oftentimes, in order to promote sanctification in the lives of God's people, they are giving us lists of vices and virtues or, or of works of the flesh and the fruit of the Spirit of of, of manifestations of sin and and the grace of God, and and they are saying things like this to us, that in order to live a life that is pleasing to God, it involves a life of continually putting off that which pertains to the old man, uh, like a man would put off dirty clothing, put off these vices, put off these works of the flesh, and put on these virtues, these graces, 
that accord with the new man that you really are now in Jesus Christ. And we find that kind of language all throughout the New Testament. It's, it's showing us what is at the heart here of Leviticus 10. This is still at the heart of a new covenant ministry. And so I ask the question, how in the world can a man be faithful to this ministry who never wants to talk about sin? As is true of the largest mega church pastor in our land. He says, I want to be positive. Well, he's not going to help any Christian unto a life of holiness, is he? I mean, that's kind of like the point of having a new covenant minister, is to help people unto God and unto a life that pleases God. So the first um, connection is with the responsibilities of a pastor-teacher. But this chapter and the heart of it in verses 8 through 11 must also influence us as we come to the Lord's table. We're in a chapter today where two priests profaned the holy and experienced an immediate judgment. We're in a chapter that teaches us that our battle against remaining sin and our pursuit of holiness matters to the God who has redeemed us for communion and fellowship with himself. And we're in a chapter today for which God never apologizes for what he did. And listening to some people talk, you would think that they think that God owes us an apology for his behavior in Leviticus 10. They are of the mind that God has changed, that he softens as we move from the Old Testament and we move into the New Testament. But he tells us that when you're perfect, you don't need to change. I, the Lord, do not change. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. What we need to get is he's no less holy today as he was in Leviticus 10. He is holy. He's concerned about our approach to him in worship in the New Testament, just as he was back in Leviticus 10. And when I mention worship, I include our coming to the Lord's table. There were those in the church of Corinth who were profaning the holy in the way that they were carrying out the Lord's Supper. And Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 30, that some of them had gotten very, very sick. The Lord's chastening hand was upon them. I'm not saying that, that they were lost people. I suspect that they were true believers, but God's chastening hand was on them. They were sick because they, had, they were profaning the Lord's table by the way they were going about it. And some of them had even died. Maybe the Lord took them off the earth lest they commit even greater sins and took them prematurely to heaven, but they died because of their abuse of the Lord's Supper. That doesn't mean that if your life reflects the stumbling of Aaron's younger sons at chapter's end in Leviticus 10, that you shouldn't come to the table. No, not at all. As verses 12 through 15 strongly make the point 
that the holy food was for the surviving priest, so the Lord's Supper is for you who have been made a kingdom of priests through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. I'm in full agreement in that sense with the book on the Lord's Supper written by J.D. Eppinga. And because Pastor Eppinga knew many Christians who ought to have been coming to the table of the Lord, but their consciences were so hyperactive that they weren't, he wrote a book with them in mind, and he called it For Sinners Only. If it isn't for sinners only, which one of us could come? Of course it is for the Ithamars and the Eliezers of the church who find themselves in the position of having to confess their sins every day to the Lord. But that's one thing to be fighting the battle against sin and fighting for uh, holiness. That's one thing. It's another thing to be living brazenly in open rebellion against the Lord like Nadab and Abihu. And, and if that would describe you this morning, then please don't come. It's not safe to come in that kind of spirit. J.D. Eppinga, when he said for sinners only, he meant for every Christian who obviously still sins. And it is for every Christian who, despite your many failures and shortcomings, are fighting the battle against sin and for holiness. But stay away. If your life is that of Nadab and Abihu, with a wanton contempt for the Lord's commands, these men were living in an openly rebellious way, and they profaned the holy by what they did. And that's what people were doing in the church of Corinth. I need to set the context so that you understand the words that I'm going to close with. Some Christians have an overactive conscience. And so I want to set the stage to explain why God's chastening hand was on some people in the church of Corinth. If you read the context and you read the background information, the church there was celebrating the Lord's Supper in the context of a, of a fellowship meal, a, a love meal. Maybe it was in the evening hour. Maybe they had uh, public worship earlier in the day, and then in the evening hour they gathered together for the Lord's Supper with a meal. But... Not everybody ate the meal. If you were a have-not, you didn't even get into the dining room of this large house church. You were in the large foyer, and you didn't feast with the church, and you didn't break bread with the church. The elements were taken out to you in the foyer because what they were doing is they were rigorously enforcing the class distinctions of Corinthian society. And by that, they were profaning the holy because in the Lord's Supper, we celebrate that God has not only healed the vertical relationship between God and man, but the horizontal between brother and brother. He's brought us together in one body in Christ. And they were denying that by the way they were practicing what they thought was the Lord's Supper, but they were profaning it. And so God's heavy hand was on that congregation. Let no one here come to the Lord's Supper in a profane manner like that. Paul says, Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat the bread and drink of the cup. 
For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for the holy ordinance of the Lord's Supper and that it is for your people who still struggle with sin and have to fight the battle against sin every day. And we are grateful for the assurances of the Lord's Supper and we pray that you would seal these truths to our hearts afresh and and that you would, Father, be pleased to bless us in our coming to the table of the Lord today. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.